Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. Let's pick back up in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're in the context of Christian suffering in 1 Peter chapter 3. And it says this in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now that has been preached through on several occasions. We made several runs at that portion of 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're moving on this week, fresh ground in verse 18. We're just laying down the context and background for verses 18 and following. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, this is a very interesting portion of 1 Peter. It is not an interruption of the context of suffering that we find before it, and we find again after it in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered, and it goes on further, Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And so the context is suffering, and so let us rightly divide the word of truth and understand it in its greater context and not create dogma or find heresy even in these precious verses. So verse 18 leads out this section. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Praise God. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is now therefore no condemnation. If you were sick this last week, like me, that was not condemnation. That was part of God's goodwill for you, that you might grow in faith, hope, and love, that you might rejoice in the gift of health, that you might rejoice in the gift of white blood cells, that you might rejoice in the gift of rest, and look to Christ by whose stripes you will be healed eternally. One day, put it off this body of death, 
where the curse of sin and death and disease and all that comes with it will never touch you again. And so, as we consider our sufferings, we are not suffering for sin in the sense of under condemnation. Christ has taken the fullness of condemnation on our behalf. That is not to say that you will not suffer for sin. You may indeed suffer for sin because God is a faithful father and he will chasten those whom he loves. But it's not condemnation, it's loving chastening. And there is a difference. And in today's world, there's much confusion. Today's world, if you're a loving father, you only dote on your children. You only pay allowance and make allowances. There is no accountability, no expectation of righteousness or obedience, certainly no chastening. First Peter is giving us instruction on how to endure suffering. And now we're looking to Christ, who also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And when we get to the end of this section, we find Christ seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. That is our hope that we will be with him there. For Christ also suffered once for sins. That's our hope in suffering. That Christ has suffered once for sins, once for sinners, and he has pronounced to tell us die over them. It is finished. We are forever saved. We are forever sealed in Christ Jesus. And our present sufferings are not the condemnation of God. Our present sufferings are not evidence that we are estranged from God. Quite the contrary. If we're suffering for Christ and His testimony, His truth, His gospel, His law, His moral standard, then we're suffering literally for Christ. And that is proof of the perdition of those who bring the suffering upon us and of our salvation. That's what Paul, the apostle, who was very familiar with suffering, said to the church of Philippi, that it has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his name's sake. And that those who bring the suffering to bear upon us, those who bring the trials and tribulations upon us, they are proving their perdition. And is the evidence or proof of our salvation. Praise God. Or as Romans chapter 8 would speak, beginning in verse 28 all the way to the end, giving this, this litany of horrific sufferings, this long list of sufferings that we have never known and by the grace of God will not know, that ends with like nakedness and famine and sword, And it says, to those people suffering those atrocities, that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is their confidence. And so this is a similar text in a similar context or the same context of suffering. For Christ also suffered once 
for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Christ also suffered once for sins. You might read Hebrews 9 and 10 again and again if you are confused about Christ's suffering and the sufficiency thereof. Once for sins. Once. And then he ascended. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that's what we see at the end of this section. He suffered once for sins. And then in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. And there he remains. And Catholicism dies. And the Orthodox Church with it. For Christ is not re-crucified in a non-bloody manner. Christ is not called out of heaven into a wafer to be worshipped and eaten for justification of sin. For Christ has also suffered once for sins. And the bread, or wafer, is a remembrance of that broken body, a remembrance of his shed blood 2,000 years ago. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He suffered once for sins. He literally suffered the fullness of the wrath of the Almighty, eternity's hell on that cross, taking the penalty for specific sins and specific sinners. It is a limited atonement. It is a specific atonement. He died for a people. He paid the price for a people. He finished his work of redemption for a people. Thus he pronounced it finished, not potentially finished, for an untold people, an unknown people, not a potential sacrifice for potential sinners who would potentially come repenting and believing upon him, but an actual sacrifice for actual sinners and the actual sins they have or would yet commit. Thus he is an all-sufficient Savior with a real atonement, not a potential atonement. For Christ also suffered once for sins, not generically, but very personally, with full knowledge, full omniscience. The just for the unjust. He, the just one. He, the holy one. Holy, holy, holy. We just sang. He is the just one. He is the holy one. The just He who had no sin, he who had no curse of death upon him, became sin for us and took our curse upon himself, took the penalty of sin upon himself and paid that penalty. This is the love of our King for us. For Christ, the King, also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. So this is the just king, the holy king, the suffering king who laid down his life for sinners, that he might bring us to God, that he might bring us to God, and that he did. All those he died for will be brought to God. All those he pronounced to die over will repent will confess Christ as Lord and will be delivered 
to the Father. Not one will be left or lost from his hand. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Being put to death in the flesh. He literally died. He truly died. He did not swoon. He was not mostly dead. And then he revived in the coolness of the tomb. No, he was fully dead. Thus he took the full curse of death that our sins brought upon us, upon himself. But made alive by the Spirit. And there are those that say dogmatically this is the Holy Spirit who made him alive. And and there are those who dogmatically say this is his own Spirit, capital S, that thus continued to live because he died in the flesh, but he was alive in the Spirit. They did not kill God. They killed the man, Christ Jesus. And I think that is the likely meaning here. I'm not willing to be fully dogmatic. Is it true that the Spirit resurrected Jesus? Well, yes and no. The New Testament gives the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit credit for resurrecting the Lord Jesus. So yes, it's true. The capital S, Holy Spirit, resurrected Jesus. Is it true that Jesus in spirit, Jesus God, the eternal spirit, did not die? Yes, that is true. And that when he died in the flesh upon the cross, that his spirit was very much alive. Yes, of course, that is true. And it would seem to be that which is being communicated here. But the ultimate alternate reading or understanding is also true, just so you know. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits. Now this is, this is to me, the illuminating verse, as far as verse 18, not being the Holy Spirit, but his capital S, Spirit, because, verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the Spirit. So in his spiritual form, if you will, because Jesus is eternally God the Son, right? And yet he took upon himself the additional nature of mankind, coming in the likeness of men, that he might be crucified. And so it's his flesh that was crucified. It's his flesh, his humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, that died upon the cross, but God did not die. God the Son did not die in his spirit. Oh no, he's very much alive. And thus, verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in the prison who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now I mentioned earlier that some find heresy in these verses. And there is a heresy of purgatory that some find in these verses that Jesus went and and preached to them. And there's some that that find an after-death opportunity to come to repentance and faith in Christ in these verses, which again would be a, a false gospel, a false hope. We have one opportunity in life while we live and breathe to repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so what is this saying? If it's not purgatory, if it's not a 
post-death opportunity to receive Jesus. Oh, now I see. (laughs) What is it? Well, it is the Lord Jesus preaching, it says, preaching. Now, there's some that that infer that, oh, he's preaching. So he's like preaching the gospel. Well, it doesn't seem to be the gospel that he's preaching. It, It seems to be victory. Victory over Satan's forces. Victory over the evil one and those that have served him. Victory. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. This would appear to be a reference to Genesis 6 and the strange events that took place there. If you'll turn there briefly, I don't want to get caught up in this. Again, this is a minor point. There's a major point I want to drill down on other than that major point of the gospel we already have drilled down on. So in Genesis 6 verse 1, now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so my understanding, I believe the best understanding of Genesis 6 in light of the rest of the Scripture and its own words is that these sons of God these, these, and the uh, giants that came from them are ultimately in some manner uh, a manifestation of demons, either Somehow the Lord allowed the the demons themselves to have relations with these women or he allowed them to enter into the men and thus have relations with the women. But it created some kind of demonic super offspring of giants. And the Lord brought judgment upon that, of course, and upon mankind as a whole. It was an unprecedented evil time in the history of humanity up to that point. If you look to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, the sons of God, Genesis 6, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lot, and so forth. It goes on after that. The portion we're looking at in particular here is God not sparing the angels who sinned. What are angels that sin? Demons. And where is their sin in the context of Scripture? Well, let's see. Verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people. 
And so it reads, it reads very similar to 1 Peter chapter 3, and it also reads very similar to Genesis 6, and thus I understand Genesis 6 to be angels that send demons sinning in their relations with these women, and thus God, 2 Peter chapter 2, did not spare these angels, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. Thus, back in chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. And so, uh, these are the disobedient spirits, the disobedient angels, verse 19, by whom also he, Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. And so, Scripture, interpreting Scripture, we understand these are demonic beings who had relations in a way that was unprecedented and allowed for some reason by God in that time, creating these giants, and God wiped out this offspring uh, in the global flood, and he also cast these demons who sinned in this particular way into a hellish holding tank awaiting final judgment. And it's those spirits, along with all the rest of those awaiting the final judgment that the Lord Jesus went to and preached to. He preached to. And he didn't preach repentance. He preached victory. He preached their destruction being sure. That is the best understanding of this challenging text. Again, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. And here we stumble into a potential second heresy. So the first one would be purgatory and or a second chance of salvation after death. So don't worry, don't worry. If you don't repent now, you may get a second chance, or you'll get a second chance. You'll, you'll see. You'll come around. And that's a very dangerous teaching because it takes the zeal out of our evangelism. It takes the zeal out of our great commission obedience that we might see sinners saved. Because, hey, they'll get a chance in purgatory to either work off their sins, they'll get a chance after death to meet Jesus and bend their knee. And surely there, you know, before him, they'll be reasonable and bend their knee to him. That is not found anywhere in Scripture, and it's not found here. Secondly, and actually far more damningly, because this error, this heresy is far more pervasive, is the heresy of salvation through baptism. That is pervasive. And there are those that find it in verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Now it's easy to see how they fall into this heresy. There's an antitype that now saves us. Baptism. But the predominant rule of interpretation, biblical interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture or the analogy of the faith. What does the rest of the Word of God say? And 
clearly, I would argue, in context, and also from the greater context of the Bible, baptism does not save. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And there we stand. And yet, look, look, look. The baptismal regenerationists, that's the name of the heresy, that's what they will say. Look, look here, it saves us. It saves us. And so there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some say this is not actually a reference to baptism at all. I think that's probably too far. I think that's probably a uh, stringent defense against the heresy of baptism. They say that this is a reference to the uh, waters of the flood that Noah survived through and that that hardship, right, did not result in their destruction. And you can only, I mean, we, we kind of gloss over the flood, as far as the terror that it would have been, it would have been absolute terror to Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, except by the grace of God. And I think they believed God, obviously. They built this ark, and the Lord did this miracle of bringing these animals two by two. And, and you know, they, they sang that song, and they come in by twosies, twosies. You know, so clearly they were full of faith. But wow, when the floods came, and the entire earth is submerged under these waters and the the winds are blowing and the waves are tossing to and fro, there would be a great terror. Even knowing as much as you believe God is a just judge, but knowing that the whole world as you knew it is gone. Everyone else that you knew, who you would love, just as we love many people now that are perishing, that are outside of the ark of Jesus Christ, it would be terrifying. And so there are those that say, that Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the eight souls, were saved through water. The water is a picture of the trials and tribulations that the church is enduring in Peter's day that he's trying to comfort people in and encourage them in the midst of. And thus, this baptism, there is now also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, and so Christ is the ark that is saving us through the the baptism of these trials and and the the turbulent waters that we're experiencing in the New Testament era. I I don't ascribe to that position. I'm just explaining it to you. I think it is speaking of baptism. I just think we need to rightly divide the word of faith regarding baptism. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's the clarifying portion. This isn't speaking about getting wet saving you, the water saving you, being dipped in Jesus' name or sprinkled in Jesus' name saving you, which, by the way, baptism is rightly translated immersion or immerse. So there's an antitype which now saves us. Immersion, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God which points to faith alone. And so, as you come to God by grace alone, through faith alone, you follow Christ and obey Him in baptism. The baptism does not save you. 
The removal of the filth of the flesh, the immersion of the water, does not save you, but your conscience or your faith, conscience with faith, that, that's the etymology of that word, con with, shuns faith, um, your conscience uh, is what saves you by faith alone in Christ alone. But the evidence of our saving faith is what? Obedience. And the first obedience in the realm of ordinance is baptism. We're publicly identifying with Jesus Christ as our Lord. In fact, I'll go a step further. We're publicly identifying with the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being immersed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that we have died with Christ and been resurrected with Him. We're publicly declaring that verse 18 is true of us. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, being put to death. We have died with Christ, Romans 6, and we're now resurrected with Christ, and we're alive with Christ. So there is an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here I want to spend some time and dig in a bit further because much hay has been made on this uh, by both outright heretics and those who flirt with heresy. And I don't want you to flirt with it. I certainly don't want you to descend into it. And so, of course, the obvious heretics that would abuse this text, and they would say, look, our, our first pope, Peter, is establishing the sacrament of baptismal regeneration for us. In paragraph 1263, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. Well, that's, that's a done deal then. If you've been baptized, you're You're in. You're saved, you're forgiven, all sins and all punishment. All punishment. That is paragraph 1263. Paragraph 1265. Baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God, who has become a partaker of the divine nature, member of Christ and co-heir with him in a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is baptismal regeneration. You're purified, you're adopted, you're a partaker of the divine nature, you're a member of the church, a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're now indwelt with the Spirit of God. Paragraph 1213, through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ and are incorporated into the church. And that's why when I hear someone say, my Roman Catholic friend is saved because they have a simple faith and trust in Jesus. I say, have they repented of their baptism? Well, no. And why would they? What do you mean? Well, their baptism is another gospel. So unless they've repented of their Roman Catholic baptism, they are not saved because they haven't repented and believed the gospel, which you must do to be saved. You can't believe another gospel and believe the true gospel simultaneously. You must repent of the false to believe the true. And Roman Catholic baptism is another gospel. It's another means of salvation. Oh, so very clearly. And so that's part of our message to our Roman Catholic friends. Have you repented of your baptism? 
the Roman Catholic Church teaches that when you were sprinkled, which isn't technically baptism, but when you were sprinkled as an infant, that your original sins were removed, you were born again from above, the Spirit of God came to dwell within you, all punishment for sin is removed, and you now are a Christian, saved, going to heaven. Have you repented of that? Because that's another gospel. What's the gospel? Oh, well, let's kind of sum it up. In uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him, not whosoever is baptized as an infant, whosoever is actually not baptized, whosoever is sprinkled, you have an unholy, unregenerate infant, born of the seed of Adam, a sinner by nature, sprinkled with unholy water by an unholy heretic priest. How does that save anyone? It doesn't. And thus, we reject it outright. And we must call upon them to reject it outright if they will be saved. So 1 Peter chapter 1, back a few chapters, verse 18. Again, Scripture, interpreting Scripture, lest we mishandle 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. So you're not redeemed of corruptible things like silver or gold. By the way, water would be in the corruptible realm. He's talking in the natural realm. You're not redeemed with corruptible things. Even the purest most valuable corruptible things like silver and gold that we've worked hard to purify and we value highly. Even these things are just corruptible things. They'll not save you. And so certainly the sprinkling of water, much less actual full immersion, washing away the filth of the flesh, that's not going to save you, but rather a good conscience, meaning a good testimony, faith alone in Christ alone. That saves you. But if you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you will obey Christ and you will be baptized as a public testimony that you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that baptism does not save, does not remove original sin, does not indwell you with the Holy Spirit, does not make you a member of the universal church. Only the blood of Jesus does not water. In Revelation 5 verse 9, again, we we find water versus blood of Jesus. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. By your blood. You've redeemed us to God by your blood. The Roman Catholic Church says infants are redeemed, forgiven, purified by water. Colossians 1 13, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Well, the, the Catholics, you know, they grow up and, and they hear that and they think, well, what about the water? I don't, I don't need the blood. I had the water. I got sprinkled. Maybe the Pope himself sprinkled me. My parents had a lot of money. They, they paid the Pope. I'm good. Had a shower from the hand of the Pope. I don't need the blood of 
Jesus. How about 1 Corinthians 1.17? Christ did not send me to baptize, says the Apostle Paul. Hear me, if baptism removes original sin and punishment for sin, fills you with the Holy Spirit, makes you remember the universal church, yeah, Jesus sent you to baptize. But Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Wait a minute. Isn't baptism the gospel? Good news. You can be born again. You can have your sins removed. You can become a member of the universal church of Christ forever. Through water baptism. Oh, no, wait. Apparently it's not. Because Christ did not send me to baptize But to what? Preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This message is foolishness to Roman Catholics because they're perishing. So they'll put their faith in their baptism and they'll put their faith in their rosary beads and they'll put their faith in purgatory and they'll put their faith in their wafer and worship it and eat it for justification all the while being deaf to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, who finished his work upon the cross. It is finished. Who did what? Back in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The priest didn't bring you to God with a little water. Jesus brings you to God with his own blood as you come to him with a good conscience, genuine faith. That's what it's speaking of. Genuine faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. How about Titus chapter 3, verse 5? I don't have time to let you turn to all these verses. I'm going to cover a lot of ground here. So Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. If there's a baptism that saves, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When you're regenerated, you're united to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you're regenerated, your blind eyes see, your deaf ears hear, your dead stony heart is replaced with a heart that beats for Christ in righteousness. And you confess Christ as Lord, and you believe in your heart that is risen from the dead, and you are saved. So we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, or which the priest did, or our parents had the priest do. No, no, no. We're saved through the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, of course, says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, nor of your priest, nor of your parents. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, not your works, not the priest works, not your parents' works, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Do you know Rome boasts their baptisms? They boast their baptism. They boast them so much that they have the dead, rotting arms and hands of those that baptized people from death to life by the thousands, supposedly, in the church of Rome. They kept the hand because that hand that sprinkled the water on so many thousands resulted in so many salvations. What does the Word of God say? 
By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so once we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not of ourselves, lest we should boast, but a gift of God, then there are good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk therein, and baptism is one of them. It's a public testimony. All glory to God, soul to glory, all glory to God. I'm coming to give my testimony that God has saved me by His amazing grace. He has washed me with the blood of the Lamb through the gift of faith. And I've died with Christ and been resurrected with Him. That's baptism. Celebrating what God has done, not what I am doing or the priest did, but what God has done. We are His workmanship. His workmanship. And so not pedo-baptism, infant baptism, that's heresy. And that's not found here in 1 Peter chapter 3. But credo-baptism or believer's baptism, that's where we stand. And that's what the Lord Jesus commands in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, of course. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples, conscious followers of Jesus. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So disciple precedes baptism. Make disciples. You preach the law of God that it might be a tutor to bring men to Christ to be justified by faith. You preach the gospel of God, for it's the power of God to salvation. They hear the law, they feel the weight of their sin, they hear the gospel, they see the door of salvation in Jesus Christ. They repent, confess Christ as Lord, believe in their hearts that God has raised from the dead. They are saved, and now they want to celebrate their salvation and tell the world that they're saved through their baptism, which is a picture of what Jesus did, not what they are doing, not what their pastor is doing, not what the priest did when they were an infant. It's a picture of what God did to God be the glory discipleship precedes baptism. Make disciples of all the nations, baptize them. You don't simply go and baptize. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's how you make disciples. Then once they're disciples, oh yes, we do baptize them. Believer's baptism command, very clear. There's lots of confusion out there. And this is one of the verses that confuse people. But when we look out at John chapter 6, verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. If ever there was a time for Jesus to say, okay, this is the means of work salvation. These are the sacraments that you'll need to do. It was there. But he shifts the conversation. What must we do? He changes it entirely and says, this is the work of God that you believe in him and whom he sent. Faith alone in Christ alone. This is the work of God that you believe in him and whom he sent. He won't even say, okay, here's what you must do. You must believe in me. No, no. They say, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? He answers, with beautiful theological clarity. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. 
It's amazing. It's a complete shutdown and rejection of works righteousness. It's a complete shutdown and rejection of all sacramental systems of righteousness. If ever there was a chance for him to say, oh, you, you'd be baptized, that's what you do. Go get yourself baptized. That was the chance. But instead, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. In John 6, verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And of course, John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to are spirit and they are life. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Hold fast to John 6.63. So all the sacramental salvation messages and arguments, they all die here under the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. They're all slain here. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Flesh profits nothing. So sprinkle the flesh, feed the flesh away for Beat the flesh. You know, Rome has tried lots of things. None of that profits anything. It is the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit must regenerate, and those whom the Spirit regenerates, the Spirit illuminates, and they believe the gospel. Read the entirety of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 if you need more clarity on that. Romans Chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That is the good conscience, the answer of the good conscience toward God that 1 Peter 3.21 is speaking of. That is salvation, a confession of Jesus as Lord, a faith, a belief in your heart, God has raised him to the dead, and with that there is the assurance you will be saved. And it says in verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. In verse 11, once again, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Consider briefly the thieves and the cross. Matthew 27, 44, we have both robbers on either side of the Lord Jesus Christ who were crucified with him, reviling him. They reviled him with the same thing. So both are reviling him at the beginning. Then in Luke 23, verse 39, it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him. So partway through his crucifixion, He had a change of heart. Partway through his crucifixion, he's regenerated. The Spirit of God regenerates him. He was reviling with the other thief and now regenerated. He says this, verse 40, Luke 23, 40, but the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you're under the same condemnation and we indeed justly For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Sans baptism. No baptism. 
the church of Christ teaches you must be baptized. And most of the pastors and those that are faithful to their doctrines anyway, they teach that you are not saved unless you're baptized. So if you make a profession of faith, you repent of sins, they'll baptize you any hour of the day. And if you make a profession of faith and you're not baptized, the church was closed, couldn't get a hold of a pastor, and you have a terrible car accident, well, he didn't make it. That's their level of commitment to baptismal regeneration. Faith is not enough. You must also be baptized. The power is in the water. So much so, I had a friend years ago that fell into sin. He committed adultery, and then he came to repentance. And he had been a Church of Christ, born again, baptized, saved believer, and then he fell into adultery, and then he came to repentance. And so they opened the church up. They baptized him that night. They're true blue Arminians where you lose your salvation if you fall into serious sin. And now to get it back, they're true blue baptismal regenerations. We got to dip you again. Got to dip you. And so on the pages of Scripture and Acts, we find this clarifying text uh, in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Well, actually, let's start in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. That is the precursor. That is the necessary requirement. Those who gladly receive the word, they've got to receive the word of God. They've got to receive God and his gospel. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. In Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, verse 12, but when they believed... Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. When they believed the things preached, then both men and women were baptized. That is the clear testimony of Scripture. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. And he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? So this was an Ethiopian Jew, right? He was, a, he was a convert to Judaism, but he was Ethiopian. He was not a Christian. He knew nothing of Jesus Christ. And he's reading Isaiah. And Philip comes and says, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. And he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. 
Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, nothing. Let's sprinkle you immediately so that your soul might be regenerated and you might become a member of the universal church of God with the punishment due to your sins now removed forever. No, that's not what he said at all. He said this. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, the eunuch, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you have the answer of a good conscience toward God, you may. In other words, if you're saved, if you believe the gospel, then yes, you may be baptized. Otherwise, you may not because it's credo-baptism. You must ascribe to the creed, the faith. You must believe. It's believer's baptism. You must confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead or you may not be baptized. I'm not going to baptize you while you're yet an unbeliever. And yet Rome has baptized unbelievers for centuries. And they boast it. They're happy for you to believe in whatever God you want, whatever Hindu God you want to worship, whatever trees you want to bow down before, whatever idols, whatever form. They're happy to baptize you and count you born again from above, a member of the church. Because this priest sprinkled water on you or your infant child. But the word of God is clear. If you believe with all your heart, you may. How did the eunuch answer? He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, because baptism is immersion. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, and so the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. Uh, consider Acts 16, 14 briefly. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So she believed the things. And by the way, God had to open her heart. He regenerated her dead soul. He illuminated her blind eyes. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized. She begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Faith preceded baptism. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. In Acts 16, verse 31, we've got a group of folks. I've got to give you the context. It's It's this prison scene where there's this great earthquake and the keeper of the prison uh, is awakened and the doors are opened and he he thinks the prisoners have fled and he's about to kill himself because he knows the the Romans will put him to death. And Paul cries with a loud voice, do yourself no harm for we're all here. And then he called for a light and ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, be baptized immediately. No, they did not say that. So they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. Faith alone in Jesus alone will save you, you and your household. You and your household who what? Who believe. 
Verse 32, then they spoke the word of God, or the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So what would you understand then? That those who were in his house were old enough to comprehend the word of God being spoken to them. Verse 33, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes and immediately he and his family were baptized. So how would you read that? Oh, clearly the, the infants got baptized. And that's how those who ascribe to baptismal regeneration, that's how Rome and Lutherans and Presbyterians and others defend their infant baptism. They say, look, a whole household got saved. Surely there were infants there. Well, if there were infants there, that portion of the household did not get baptized because clearly they were teaching that you must believe and get baptized. In Acts chapter 18, then Crispus, verse 8, then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with his household, with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. And this is the testimony all through the Scriptures, saints. And therefore, that is where we stand. And we don't allow anyone to come to First Peter chapter 3 and build an argument for another gospel that is not another, another means of salvation that is not another. Rather, if they attempt that, we call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. We say, oh, my friend, sadly, you're not saved. You're believing another gospel, another good news. Uh, baptismal regeneration. I, I was actually saved as an infant. Praise God for his amazing grace. How sweet the sound that, that saved me as an infant as my parents had me sprinkled by a priest. Well, that's a false gospel. You must repent of that and believe the true gospel and believe upon Jesus and his finished work alone or you will perish in your sins. All right. We will continue this message, not this Wednesday. I'll be gone. There's no Wednesday night Bible study, I remind you. The following Wednesday, we will continue this message. There are a great many quotes that I want to go into to look at the Presbyterian church, to look at the Lutheran church, to look how they mishandle baptism and to warn you because our Lutheran friends, our Presbyterian friends are far too close to the heresies of Rome and we need to be uncomfortable with that and we need to be equipped enough to one, deny it and not fall into it, but two, to call them out of it, to call them to simper reformanda, to continue to be reformed by the word of God. Because it is a dangerous error that the Lutherans and the Presbyterians embrace with their pedo or infant baptism. They don't embrace the heresy of Roman Catholicism. That's damning error. But they embrace dangerous error that is far too close. And so we need to understand it and be equipped to love them with action and truth.